Last week, we, we stepped way back into the 1980s. Any children of the 80s in here? Where are you at? We got some of you. Way back to the 1980s, and we talked arcade games. And so we're talking Pac-Man. We're talking uh, Mrs. Pac-Man, which, by the way, that's kind of sexist, right? I mean, why isn't she Pac-Woman? She's just known for being attached to Pac... No, I, that's, not, that's not right. She's an independent Pac person, right? And uh, we were talking Galaga. This is, you know, the little, the little game with the triangle fighter jet, right? And then it just shoots out a pixel to hit the other ones. And so we're talking Galaga or some of you guys to bring you newer, younger people to speed. Super Mario Brothers, right? Arcade games. That's what we were talking about, right? And in these games, if you remember, you have three lives, right? One quarter bought you three lives so that when you you messed up you got a couple more times you got three tries with with one quarter but then after all those three lives were gone these two words would show up on the screen along with some some kind of defeat appropriate music and those two words were game over game over and so last week we kicked off this spring series that we're calling uh, game over because outside of Jumanji the new one the video game one outside of the video game in real life we will occasionally kind of face these these game over moments these moments where it just feels like game over great failure total defeat uh, a massive loss, a, a moment that we feel like we just cannot recover from. from. And so last week, uh, Pastor Kevin brought us to the story of, of Peter with a look at this huge game over moment in Peter's life. Peter, uh, one of Jesus' three closest friends, uh, just completely uh, bailed on Jesus. He denied Jesus three times. He used up all three of his lives. I don't know Jesus. He said, I don't know, I don't know the man. I did not follow Jesus. And then the third time, so emphatically that it says he began to curse, uh, call a curse on himself. So maybe said something along the lines of, may God send me to hell if I ever even knew Jesus. When Jesus needed him the most, he bailed. That's a game over. That's one of those that feels like there's no recovering from this moment. No recovering, right? Wrong. We see that, that God is a God of grace, that God is like that father at the arcade game who has a bag of quarters and says, here's another one, try again, and try again, and try again, because the goal here is to see you have victory. That's what God wants for you. That's what I want when I bring my kids to those old video games from my childhood. I want to see you win. I want to see you beat Super Mario Brothers. Try again, try again, try again. I want this for you. And so last week, failure this week, a new game over situation, and the game over situation this week is hopeless. Hopeless. There, there are times in our lives when we find that we're just up against a whole lot of hopelessness. We're asking the question, is there any hope? Is there any hope for my marriages? Is there any hope for my, my health? Maybe you're up against some kind of diagnosis or somebody you know is up against a diagnosis. Is, is there any hope for my career? Are there any, uh, is there any hope for my, my children? Is there any hope for my, my finances? And so what I want to do in order to address hopelessness is I want to I look at together what feels to me to be possibly the most hopeless situation in the entire Bible. And I want to watch God's hand just start to dole out quarters, just start to give grace and say, keep going, child, keep going. Keep going. I'm praying that we will see this most hopeless of situations and say, if there's hope in this situation, there's got to be hope for my situation. So what is this most horrifically hopeless situation we read about uh, in the Bible, in my opinion? It's this woman that is known today as the widow of Zarephath. Her story is in 1 Kings chapter 17. So if you want to take a Bible, head on over there. Uh, you can do that. 
We've got Bibles around the room. If you need one, we'd love for you to grab that and uh, bring it home. Uh, we've got the Bible on our church app. You can have a digital version there, uh, and then we'll also put it on the screen here for you. The widow of Zarephath in 1 Kings chapter 17. Uh, you'll see that this is a story of a hopeless person and God showing up in the midst of her hopelessness. And the, really the big idea up front for you this morning is that when I am hopeless, that's when God comes through. When I'm most hopeless, that seems like that tends to be as we read the scriptures when, when God comes through. It's said in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 in the Bible that when I am weak, then I am strong. Why? Because God's power, he says, is made perfect in my weakness. Because when I'm weak, the, the power of Christ rests on me. When I uh, can't lift the burden and I say, you know what, I can't do this, and I let go, and my weakness is exposed, that's when God comes in and says, I got this, I got this. And so 1 Kings uh, chapter 17, before we read, I want to give you a little bit of context of the widow of, of Zarephath. The village of Zarephath is on the, the eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea. It was a Phoenician village, and that's important to know because it wasn't under the control of, of Israel and, and her leadership, though it's very close to Israel. And this village, uh, there had been no rain for three years. And, and so there's issues with crops, there's issues with animals, and after three years, they are in a full-on Famine. Now, to, to, to better understand the situation, we kind of go back in history just a little bit. Uh, there was a king in Israel named Omri, and Omri didn't honor God with his kingship, with his life, uh, but he was kind of politically strong. One of the political moves that Omri uh, did is he made king, friends with a neighboring king, the king of Tyre. And what's often done back then is, is kings would take their children and they would uh, have them marry each other as a way of strengthening relationships between uh, the different kingdoms. And so King Omri said, uh, my son Ahab can marry your daughter. And so Ahab, the son or the prince of Israel, marries uh, the, the daughter uh, of the king of Tyre. Her name is, dun, 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 you ready for it? Jezebel. So Ahab and Jezebel come together. Fast forward a few years. Omri is dead. He's passed away. And Ahab is king of Israel along with his wife Jezebel the queen. Now the thing about Jezebel is she didn't worship uh, the God of Israel. She didn't worship Ahab's God. She worshiped this God named Baal. And, and, and so when she married into the, the people of Israel, what she did is she brought with her Baal worship and she introduced it to the people of Israel and it became really an epidemic and people all over Israel began to, to worship Baal, not the one true God of, of, of Israel, Yahweh God. And Israel falls headlong into Baal worship and God then uh, does what he always does. He's gracious and what he does is he sends a messenger to remind the people who are now going headlong into Baal worship of his faithfulness, how good he has been and, and to bring them back through history to think about his hand in their lives and in their people and his work uh, in their, their nation. And so he calls them, come back to worshiping me. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in loving kindness. The messenger that God sends to the people of Israel in the midst of this idolatry is Elijah. And Elijah does his job. Elijah is a prophet. And so through messages and through miracles, he, he reminds the people of the works of God and he calls them back from Baal and to Yahweh to turn, to repent. That's what turn means, to turn and come back to Yahweh. And he just pleads with them and pleads with them and pleads with them to come back to the God of Abraham and Isaac and, and Jacob and Joseph and on and on. So long story short, the people refused to hear the message. 
And Ahab and Jezebel refuse to hear the message. And after a whole lot of pleading, Elijah is forced to deliver this message of judgment. First grace, they didn't listen, they didn't receive it. So a message of judgment. Here's the message, 1 Kings uh, chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. It says, Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, here's what he says, here's the message, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. So the judgment is what? The judgment is in order to get the attention of the people of Israel, to get them to turn back to God, God has given Elijah the power over the rain. He's given Elijah the power to declare if it's going to rain or if it's not going to rain. And so God says, here's what we're going to do. No rain, no dew. And he's instructed to say that. No rain, no dew. And when I say it again, that's when rain or dew will come. And so Elijah goes, he tells uh, Jezebel, he tells uh, Ahab, and uh, both think this old guy is crazy at this point. Both at this point, uh, including Ahab, have now begun to, to worship Baal and abandon Yahweh God. Until a few months go by, you can imagine, after some time there's no rain, they start to think, well, maybe, maybe he's onto something. Maybe he wasn't lying after all. And so here's what Ahab does. Ahab decrees a, a worldwide manhunt for Elijah. I mean, that's what it says as you read in the next chapter, a worldwide manhunt for Elijah. They're going to overturn, they're going to find every nation. They're going to track down Elijah. And I guess what they're trying to do is they're going to get him and they're going to torture him until he says, okay, 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 it's going to rain. And then force him to make it rain. And, and so God sends Elijah out. He says, I'm going to help you flee. I'm going to help you hide. And he brings him to this brook, uh, the brook Cherith. And here, the brook Cherith, another little funky miracle is he has ravens bring to Elijah in the morning, in the evening, bread and meat in the midst of this drought, in the midst of this famine. He's at this brook with water and he's getting fed by God. Now, here's what happens. The brook eventually dries up and he needs some sustenance. And so he's forced to move. Pick up with me now at verse 8. 1 Kings 17. Verse 8, it says, Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, do not fear, go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me and afterwards make something for yourself and for your son. For thus says the Lord God, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil should not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. When I am hopeless, that's when God comes through. So Elijah, fleeing for his life, fleeing this global manhunt, that was decreed to hunt him down. He's instructed by God to go to this little village, Seraphath, 
Look for a particular widow. And God says, she's going to give you lodging. She's going to give you food. Now, we're introduced to her. Let's think through her situation for a moment if we can. We first see, obviously, that she's a widow. So that means that this woman's husband has died. All the grief, all the pain, all the loneliness, the heartache that comes with this. On top of this, in that day, being a widow uh, meant that, that you lost most of your legal rights and you would be forced to depend solely upon your children or the kindness of uh, people in your neighborhood, your village to provide for you. Uh, we later learn in the next section that she does have a son. However, we learn that this son is of age that she can still hold him in her arms, which tells us that he's probably like toddler or younger. So I don't know, anybody have toddlers in this room? People who have toddlers in this room, do your toddlers have jobs? I don't think so. So uh, your toddlers aren't able to provide for you. That'd be funny, right? They're not able to provide for you. And so she's, she's not able to be provided for by her, her son. And so she's now dependent upon the, the people of the village to provide for her, to say, okay, I've got a little extra oil. Here you go. We've got a little extra bread or food sustenance. Here, here you go. We'll, we'll help you out. Under normal circumstances, that's what would be done. And yet under normal circumstances, even with the kindness of other villagers, widows and, and orphans would be just sent into to just complete poverty under normal circumstances but this wasn't normal circumstances this was full-out famine people had nothing to share they are literally starving to death sometimes my kids will say dad I'm starving and I say correction you're hungry there's a big difference you're not starving you're not starving these guys, they're literally wasting away. On, on top of all of this, she grew up in Baal worship. Her, her, her village uh, was a Baal-worshipping village. Baal was known as the fertility god, but Baal was also known in that day as the god who controlled the rain. And yet it hadn't rained for how many years? It hadn't rained for three years. He's the one who controls the rain. It hasn't rained for three years. And it is so bad, history will tell us, that the religious leaders or the prophets of Baal declare, Baal's dead. There's no rain. So our conclusion is that somewhere in the heavens or in the underworld, uh, our God died. He got killed and there's no rain. Uh, we're, we're in big trouble. Here's what I'm getting at. The woman is hopeless. Her husband has died. Her and her only child are thrust into poverty and she's watching before her own eyes her child starve to death. She's watching her child lose the meat on his bones and waste away. And now the God of her culture has let her down. There is no rain. He must be dead. He didn't come through on the thing that he promised us. He didn't come through on the thing that he specializes in, rain. So she can't even pray anymore. Verse 12 tells us that, that they're within days of dying, that she was going to mix, when Elijah meets her, she was going to mix a little bit of oil and flour, and, and she had gathered some sticks to make a little fire so that she could try to bake up something, have a, maybe a little biscuit of sort, a little small uh, cake of, not a birthday cake, just a little cake of, uh, of, of sorts, and have their last meal, she declares, so that we can eat and then we're dead. We eat, and then they're on the brink of death. It's absolutely hopeless. Now, I don't think any of us in here have ever 
come anywhere close to starvation. I do know some of your stories and that you've been at financial places where you couldn't get groceries and you were, you were literally hungry. But I don't know that any of us have ever been at the place where we're within days of dying. But I, I, I would venture to say that, that many of us have come to a place where we have a sense of the God of our culture letting us down. The God of our culture not coming through on its promises. See, Baal promised, if you worship me, and he was very particular, if you did it this way, uh, then I would, I would provide rain for you. But what for us, what are, what are some of the gods of our culture, America, our culture? Some of the gods of our culture, specifically in Boston, success and achievement. Right? We are in a major college town, globally speaking. We've got lots of startups here. We've got lots of medical achievement taking place here. I would venture to say that many people in this room have chased after these things, success and achievement, and you found that it leaves you unsatisfied. There's always a new accolade to chase. There's always, when you hit that goal, that mark, there's always a new one right in front of you that you got to go after with, with gusto, and you just are constantly chasing, chasing, chasing. Another God of our culture is prosperity. Obviously, this is America. We are known for our prosperity. We are known for our wealth and our comfort, and yet there's always something else that we've got to purchase, right? There's a, we get the thing that we've been saving up for, and there's something else that we need, and we use that word so, so just loosely. We need this. We chase material things and it just leaves us hungry another god of our culture is sex and sexuality we're told that that it's core to who you are and so go after it with everything that you got and 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 it's going to fill you hollywood pushes on us from a young age that it's it's all about uh, romance and and sex and and getting that relationship we're trained from a very young age that once you get that feeling once you get that that bond that relationship it's going to fill you and we find time and time again that it lets you down. Another one that maybe is a little bit more recent, a god of our culture, is really the, the god of fame or to be known. And, and so today, with social media, everybody gets a little, little taste of it, just, just a little taste of it, so that people can, can see our lives and they can see what we're doing and they can affirm us all day long with likes and thumbs up and hearts and emojis. And yet, if you've, if you've fallen into this spiral, you find that it, it leaves you wanting more. It leaves you kind of hungry and you turn off your phone as you go to bed and you're like, man, I feel worse about myself. I feel awful. Everybody else's life is awesome and mine is pretty darn lame. And, and so for those reasons, though we don't experience physical hunger, I think we're all very, very hungry. And, and many people find themselves feeling a sense of, of hopelessness. The gods of our culture let us down. Some of you have experienced the letdown. Some of you are in the middle right now of hopelessness. And it doesn't really make sense, right? People look and say, how are we hopeless? It doesn't, we're not starving to death, but we're, we are hungry. And we often feel depressed because we're trained from a really young age that these things will satisfy us and we find that they don't give much satisfaction at all or maybe they give a little temporary satisfaction and then it's ripped away from us. The widow of Zarephath here is deeply hopeless. But then this prophet comes into her town. The, the prophet of the true God comes into her town and has a, has a message that he is able to deliver to someone in need of provision. And she meets him at the, the gate of the city and he asks her 
for water. Isn't it interesting? It kind of sounds similar to Jesus and the woman at the well, right? At the, at the well, he needs water, but he's actually there to provide living water for her. And he actually needs some water, but he's there to provide uh, sustenance and hope for her. He asks for some water. She provides. He asks for a little bit of bread. She says, what are you talking about? We got, we got no baked goods. There's no croissant that I can, can, can give you. I've got a little bit of oil and a little bit of flour. In fact, I was going with these sticks here. You see these sticks? I was actually going to make a fire, bake something, and then me and my son were done. It's hopeless. But when it's hopeless, that's when God comes through. That's when God comes through. And so Elijah says, okay, go do that. But first, make me a little cake too, if you would. Now catch this, verse 14. He's excited to introduce her to the God of Israel. She's been worshiping Baal. He's excited to introduce her to the God of Israel. You go make those three small cakes. And what you're going to find when you do that is that your flour, it will not run out. It'll just always be there. And you'll find that your, your jug of oil will not run out. It'll just always be there until Yahweh God, not Baal, until Yahweh God brings rain. In other words, you are not going to die of starvation. You will be able to provide for me and actually other people as well. In her hopeless situation, God shows up. He shows up. But watch this. This is important. She doesn't see the miracle yet. She's heard from Elijah about the hope, the prophetic word about what's about to happen, but she hasn't seen it yet. When does she see this miracle? Verse 15, And she went and did as Elijah had said, and she and her household ate for many days. When did she see the miracle? When she heard what was about to happen, and she went and did what he said. She saw the miracle after she took a tangible step of faith. She could have wrote him off and said, that sounds crazy. That's weird. I don't think so. Hope is gone. That couldn't happen. I've, I've tried everything. No. But she took a step of faith and she sees the miracle. Think about some of the miracles in the Bible with God's provision of food. There's always a, a step of faith first. God provides manna from heaven. He says, if you want bread from heaven tomorrow morning when you wake up, what do you got to do tonight? You got to throw away all the bread from today. What do you mean throw away the bread? It's going to be bad in the morning. They, they try it one time and there's worms. Throw it all away and you'll have bread tomorrow morning. The, the feeding of 5,000. The baskets aren't going to run out. We know the story. The, the, the food just keeps coming. But first, go find whatever you have. Collect something. And they, well, this is all we've got. This little boy's lunchable. And so he, they present it. And there's a step of, okay. And he does this amazing miracle. Unlimited flour and oil. But first... Don't just make the two meals, make a third meal. Even though you barely have enough for two meals, make a third one. She exercised faith in the midst of what seemed to be a hopeless situation. She's given a chance to exercise faith. Can I just tell every single one of us that when you find yourself in what seems to be a hopeless situation, you are given by God chances to exercise faith faith not in the God of the culture not in the lies of the culture but in the one true God the God who is unseen that's why it's faith Elijah says listen I know you're hurting I know you're grieving I know you're struggling to get by I I know you're on the brink of death but if you will exercise faith you will see God and she exercises faith and God provides and provides for her and her her child and Elijah and others for many days 
until the drought is over. God came through. It's a powerful story. When I'm hopeless, that's a great time for God to show up and, and for God to come through. The story goes on though. Elijah stays at this home. He hides out in this home from this manhunt and things are going well. He's there for, for many days. And Elijah would have stayed upstairs because in that culture, uh, they would have built a, kind of like a, a place where guests or others could stay uh, in the kind of the room up top there. And so he would wake up, I would imagine, and come downstairs and they'd have biscuits and gravy or whatever. And they'd have their biscuits. And, and, and I would imagine because now she's turned from Baal to worshiping Yahweh God, that, that having this old prophet in the house, that, that he would disciple her and her son in the ways of following God. Over time, they're starting to, to put some meat back on their bones. They're starting to fatten up. They're starting to get healthy. It's a sweet, sweet season for them. And now check out verse 17. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed in the upper chamber, his room up, upstairs there. And he cried to the Lord, oh Lord, my God, why have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? And then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O oh Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God. And that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. So, this is awesome. Things are on the up. Things are looking good. Everybody's getting fat and healthy, eating, growing in faith. It's a hopeful season. The widow, her son, and this kind old prophet upstairs. It's awesome season for them. Many days. We don't know how long many days is, but many days this is going on. Beautiful. And then tragedy strikes. And her beloved son gets sick and he dies. Now this woman would have assumed that she had done something wrong to deserve this. My child dies because I did something wrong. Because she grew up worshiping Baal and he was notoriously vindictive. If you didn't do things just the way Baal instructed you to do things, they believed that he would exercise retribution. This is how she's raised. This is how her mind is, is wired from a young age to think about God. That, that she had abandoned Baal and turned and started worshiping this Yahweh God. And now her son is dead. And she would have thought it was all her fault. And this isn't an unusual way for people to think about pain. We still do it today. It's all throughout the Bible as well. There was the guy named Job who lost everything, not because he did anything wrong. In fact, we get a glimpse into the conversation between God and, and the devil, Satan, with regards to this whole situation. And we see there wasn't because he did anything wrong. And so he has these friends, pretty lame friends. They come and try to console him. And as they're trying to console Job, they conclude that you must have done something wrong to get this. And this wasn't 
why he was, he was getting all this. It was, there was a whole other thing that God was up to. In the New Testament, John chapter 9, Jesus and his disciples walk by this man who was born blind. And the disciples say to Jesus, hey, Rabbi, what did this guy do to deserve this? Was it him? Was it his parents? Who sinned that he would be born blind? And Jesus says, nobody sinned. Not that nobody sinned. But he's saying it wasn't because of anybody's particular sin. It was so that the, the, the work of God could be displayed in his life. And then he goes on to heal the man. And so the disciples of Jesus, the friends of Job, and this woman, they all assume somebody must have done something wrong to deserve this. That if you're good, good things happen. And if you're bad, bad things happen. And that kind of the thinking of a lot of people in our world. If you're good, good things will happen. If you're bad, bad things will happen. That's not Christianity. That's called karma. It's a whole other religion. It's completely bogus. Here's what we believe. The only bad thing that happened to a truly good person was when Jesus Christ died on a cross to pay the price for our sin. He is the only legitimately pure and good person who did not deserve bad, and yet he was nailed to the cross. The message of Jesus is not you get what you deserve. It's actually the opposite of that. We call it the gospel, the good news. It is so countercultural. The message of Jesus is you get what you don't deserve. You get grace. That God is no respecter of, of persons. In, in Matthew chapter 5, 45, uh, it, it says this, God makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. We've got to understand that, that, that most of life's circumstances have nothing to do with the morality of the people involved in those circumstances. God is not in the heaven keeping score, keeping track. Oh, that was three strikes. Let's, let's get them. Oh, they're doing really well. Let's, let's bless them. That's not how God works. Rain falls on evil people and good people. Sun shines on evil people and good people. And God has a plan, as we even see in Job's life. In this conversation, God has a plan in all of it. And it doesn't make sense to us all the time. Most of the time. For this widow, things are looking up. Things are looking great. Her, her son is doing well. And now he would eventually be able to, to grow up and the, the, the script would be flipped and now he could provide for mama just like he was supposed to as he grows up. She now has a friend and this old man, Elijah, her husband died, but now she's got this good friend and this guy he's caring for, they're, they're being discipled, he, they've got some fellowship. This is great. But then her son dies and she asks Elijah, verse 18, is it because my sins are being remembered? Did he die because, because of my sins? That's what it is, right? No. Elijah says, give me your son. Sometimes when we, we're going to go over to Western Mass today, it's an hour and a half ride for one of our kids' birthdays, and, and that means we'll, we'll come home at bedtime because it works perfectly because they're not whining about the long car ride. They're sleeping on the way home. Uh, but that means that the, the sacrifice, the trade-off, is that when we get home and we park in our driveway, we've got like limpless, lifeless, limp, limping children that we've got to pick up and lug up the stairs and flop them in their bed, right? And this woman has this, this child in her arms, but he's completely limp. He is, he is dead. And Elijah says, we have your son. And a grieving mother, a step of faith says, okay, 
and she lays her son before Elijah. And Elijah takes him upstairs into the chamber where he resided. And he lays this kid out on the bed with no heartbeat, no breath in his lungs. And he begins to plead with the Lord. And I love this moment. It's helpful for me. It tells me that I'm not crazy, that even a prophet and even a pastor has moments where we wrestle with God and we say, God, I don't understand. He doesn't understand. God, why? Why? Why have you brought calamity on this sweet woman who's gone through so much? Why have you killed her boy? This honest moment of of a meltdown of a minister happens here. And then it's followed with a very faith-filled prayer. And three times he stretches over this boy. God, please. God, please. God, please restore life into this child. And on the third time, breath enters back into the lungs of this, this kid. Heart starts beating again. He's alive. He takes this child and he, this time I imagine not carrying the child, but walking the child down the stairs and the child runs up to mama and it's a resurrection. This is the first resurrection in the Bible. Before Jesus, as we celebrated a couple weeks ago at Easter, before Lazarus, before Tabitha, resurrection. It felt like game over Hope is gone, and that's a really awesome moment for God to come through. And God came through for this woman. There's always hope. There's always hope. For the Christian, there is always hope. Let me ask you, what is your hopeless situation? This is where we want to start identifying our own life and how the Scriptures apply to our own lives because every story of Scripture somehow applies to us. How does this apply to you? What's your hopeless situation? Is it your marriage? We've tried everything. There is no hope for our marriage and just, we're done. Is it, is it your finances? I don't know how this is going to work out. We, it's just not going to work. We don't have any money. We're, we can't pay the bills. We can't, uh, we can't put groceries. I don't know what it is. Is it health? This diagnosis? Pastor, it's so horrible. There, there is no hope. Whatever, whatever it is, like the woman who takes her lifeless child and hands him over to Elijah. Would you hand over your lifeless and dead marriage to God? Would you hand over your lifeless bank account to God? Your lifeless dead career to God? Hand it over to God. I can't promise you and I won't promise you that God will then cut a check and say, here we go. I can't promise you that, that God's then going to give you a promotion. I can't promise you that, that God is going to cure your cancer. But here's what I can promise you, that God will meet you in your situation. That's what we see here, that God is going to meet you in your time of need, in your hopeless situation. God meets you there. And how does God meet her in this moment? He, he meets her by sending her this, this, this old man, this prophet, Elijah. He comes full of hope into a very hopeless situation. He comes with the message of Jesus, of ultimately, because all of this is pointing to Jesus, to this very hopeless situation. How does someone go from hopeless to hope-filled? They go from hopeless to hope-filled by meeting God, by coming to know the God of Israel. Now, here's how we close. We close by identifying who we are. Some of you in here, you are the widow. 
today you find yourself in a place where you are in need of hope. You're in need of hope. And, and the answer is not the check. The answer is not the promotion. The answer is not even necessarily to get out of this circumstance. The answer is God in the midst of it all. God in the midst of it all. A relationship with God. And others of you in here, you're Elijah. In fact, every Christian is to be an Elijah, a messenger of hope, a man who knew God and had hope in the midst of famine, met a woman who did not know God and did not have hope in the midst of famine. And and the hope came to the hopeless through a hopeful prophet. Christians, you are Elijah. You are God's messengers in the midst of famine. And though our world doesn't necessarily see the famine because we're eating and we're, 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 we're enjoying uh, prosperity here in America, there is a famine. There is a depravity deep within inside of every single person. People are hungry. The God of culture is letting down your neighbors and your coworkers and your family members, letting them down, your, your roommates, your, your, your classmates. The God of culture is letting them down. It's not coming through. It's not working out. And they're hungry. And they're starving. And we get to be like Elijah and say, but there's hope. There's hope. There's hope. And introduce God. Some of you, you're the widow, and it feels like a game over moment. Can it get any worse than this? Can it get any worse than this? No hope. That's a great time for God to come through. Game over is a great moment for a breakthrough. Seen it time and time again in my own life. Seen it time and time again in the lives of other people. We see it all over the Bible so that we can be reminded that when when good things happen, it's not because we were awesome. It's because God is awesome. When good things happen, it's because God brought a breakthrough. It's because God showed up into a really challenging situation. Because when we are weak, then we are strong. Because that's when the power of Christ rests on us. You need to trust him. You need to trust him. You need to keep moving, some of you. You need to go build that fire. You need to go make not one and two, but three cakes. Keep pressing on and trusting God and watch how he's got you. You need to hand over your lifeless situation. That's laying whatever it is that's burdening your heart at the feet of Jesus and say, I trust that you got this. I I don't have, I can't do this. I'm beyond myself right now. That's a great place to be. Because when it seems like it's a game over, it's actually a perfect place for a fresh Start. When you're hopeless, that's when God comes through. Let's pray. Father, I know that there are people in this room they feel hopeless right now. I know some of their stories, and many of them I don't know their stories, but there are people in this room I know that are hurting. And with our limited, finite minds, we can't imagine a scenario where you would make good out of this, but we've seen time and time again that you're playing a long game and, and you're going to work all things together for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. And so God, we want to hand it over to you. And God, we're not, God, change our hearts so that we're not in it for a circumstance change. We're in it for you. We're in it so that we can walk with you through whatever it is we find ourselves in. And so God, I commit my friends in this room to you. Would you meet them right where they're at and just tell them, whisper in their hearts, I'm here, I'm with you. Never leave you, I'll never forsake you. And God, for those people in this room who 
who they're not a follower of Jesus. God, I pray that today they would become a follower of Jesus and they would see that Jesus is the only one who is truly, perfectly pure and good and he volunteered for the pain, for the joy set before him endured the cross. So God, I pray that for my friends there would be this overwhelming sense of your love for them and your care for them and your desire to inject hope into their hearts they would turn from sin, which is ultimately independence from you, and they would surrender it all. They would hand it all over to you and say, God, I take you. I want a relationship with Jesus. That they would become a Christian. They would call upon your name and be saved. While we're praying, and in the stillness of this moment, if that's you, you call out on the name of Jesus. Say, Jesus, I want to turn from my sin and independence from you, and I want to turn and trust you. I want to follow you all the days of my life. I thank you for what you're doing in our hearts. May there just be hope all over this room, deep within us, as we're reminded that you're with us, you've got us, you meet us here. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.